Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Peter Singer. He's a philosopher and professor at Princeton and at the University of Melbourne. He is well known for his work on animal rights and effective altruism, and while he was unsuccessful in politics in his own career, he has certainly found great success as one of the world's most influential thinkers. Thank you for joining me all the way from Australia. I'm happy to be with you. I am now a parliamentarian, but once upon a time I was studying philosophy at Queen's and at Oxford. And for me, at least, I mean, there were a number of important philosophers that I would turn to and sort of say, this person helped shape my views, including John Rawls and Dworkin and Raz. But outside of a legal context, you would certainly be at the top of my list. So all the more reason I appreciate you joining me. That's good to know. It's always good to be able to influence people in a positive direction. And if those people then get into a position to influence others or an entire nation, that's better still, obviously. <laughs> well, so uh, speaking of my role as a member of parliament, we're, right, we're in a real tragedy, obviously, at the moment uh, as a world facing this pandemic. And at the same time, as so many people are losing their jobs and losing their income, there is an automatic pay increase that members of parliament receive here in Canada. So I received a pay increase as of April 1st of $3,750, and already a number of my colleagues have committed to donate that increase in a thoughtful and compassionate way. And my first thought was to donate it to my local hospital. And then I thought, hang on a second, I'm going to be speaking to Peter Singer. I wonder what he would say. Yes, well, you're quite right. Um, firstly, I applaud the uh, decision to donate it at all. That's perhaps the most important uh, thing decision to make. But having made that decision and being a citizen of an affluent nation like Canada or like Australia, where I am, I think that you get better value from your money by donating it to uh, an organization working effectively in one of the low income countries of the world. So it's, it's pretty obvious in a way that the money goes further in places where the cost of saving a life is in the low thousands of dollars. You know, maybe it's as low as 1,000, um, but anyway, two, 3,000. Whereas the cost of saving a life in an affluent country is hundreds of thousands or millions. Uh, and that's true in the uh, pandemic uh, that we're experiencing now as well as at other times. So if we believe, as I think we should, that the importance of saving a life doesn't depend on whether that is the life of a fellow citizen of our country or just a human life anywhere, then we just get much better value by donating, as I say, to an effective organization. And let me put in here a plug for an organization that I founded called The Life You Can Save. You People can find it at thelifeyoucansave.org, which recommends uh, about 20 organizations that have been independently verified as being highly effective. And right at this moment, it has a particular list of those that are working in low-income countries on uh, coronavirus-related activities, where they have teams in place, experienced staff already working in those countries, uh, often citizens of those countries themselves so they know what to do they know ways to get information out to people about how to protect themselves against the virus which otherwise they might not have access to or how to provide soap so that they can wash their hands which we take for granted but of course not everybody can do uh, a whole range of simple things and very inexpensive things 
that will save lives in low-income countries. Now, you wrote the, a book, The Life You Can Save, a little over 10 years ago now. Could you have imagined when you wrote it that it would lead to the beginning of an organization and fundraising for, for so many effective organizations around the world? No, I wasn't really thinking of that, I must admit, when I wrote it. Uh, I was just thinking of getting the book out there. And then someone suggested, look, you should have a website to keep the things up to date and to mention good organizations as that changes and to encourage people to pledge to give. So my friend set up a website. And then a year or two later, that had built up a bit. I got a cold call from a guy called Charlie Bressler, who told me that he'd been um, working in the men's clothing retail industry, had done pretty well, had risen to the top of a nationwide chain. But that somehow that was never really what he wanted to do from the start. That didn't really fit his values. Um, and now he was ready to quit that. And would I like somebody to build this website up into a real organization and he wasn't asking to be paid in fact he was offering to donate so he's on negative salary I tell him um, <laughs> um, but he's done a great job of doing that and and that's why the organization exists and is in the shape it is today donating the top-up uh, salary increase that I've received on April 1st is one thing but your call to action is a bit more radical than that in that your view, and if your argument takes hold, it's that not just the $3,750 that I'm to receive April 1st, that I've received April 1st, but whether it's myself as a member of parliament, whether it is my former colleagues in law, whether you're the president or director of a Canadian Taxpayers Federation, regardless, your call to action is, is I think, more radical to say we should be giving much more than, than we are. And do you have a sense of where we're at versus where we should be. You're right that my call to action is more radical um, than just the top-up increase that you've got. Um, and I think that we are very far from where we should be because, as I say, it is still pretty easy to save lives in low-income countries. Um, you know, I got interested in this a long time ago. As you said, I wrote The Life You Can Save 10 years ago. Um, but... Uh, it's almost 50 years ago, right? It's 1972, I published my first uh, article on this topic called Famine, Affluence and Morality. Uh, and in that, I asked readers to imagine that they were walking across a park uh, in which there was a pond. Let's say they, they know the pond is, is quite a shallow pond because they've seen kids playing it in summer. But uh, now it's it's not summer. They don't expect to see anybody in the pond, but they notice uh, there is something in the pond. And when they look more closely, it's just a toddler, a small child who seems to have fallen into the pond and is in danger of drowning. So uh, you look around, you say, well, where are the parents or a babysitter? But there's nobody there. Uh, and so your next thought is, gee, I better save this child. I better jump into the pond. No danger to me. Uh, it'll be waist deep, but I can save this child. But then you think, oh, but there is a cost to that because I'm going to some special event and I'm wearing my best shoes and other nice clothes and they're going to get wet and muddy and probably ruined and I'll have to replace them. So it will cost me something to save this child. Now, at that point, I pause and ask, so would it be wrong just to forget that you ever saw the child and to walk on past the pond and therefore not be put to the expense of replacing your shoes? And 
I've often asked that to audiences, students, and, and they all agree that it would be wrong, it would be terrible, they say, awful thing to do. Uh, but, you know, we, we do that every day, in effect. We walk past the children who are, and the adults who are dying in low-income countries because they're not sleeping under bed nets to protect them from malaria, they don't have safe drinking water, they haven't been immunized against measles, um, a whole lot of different things that can come up. So, uh, and if there are, and there are uh, effective organizations that can take the money that we ha can spare and give it to them and protect those people, we ought to be doing that. Um, and that's that's a very demanding standard, really. It's basically saying, you know, all, there's all, all kinds of small things that you spend money on that are just not essential at all. And really, the right thing to do would be to take that money and donate it to these effective organizations. I would compare it to an idea like the original position of John Rawls. I, I would say, it, it for me at least as a philosophy student, it was that powerful of an idea to, to encourage me to rethink and to more deeply think about my beliefs and, and my ethics. And so I think that shallow pond example argument is, is an incredibly simple but powerful one. I wonder sometimes when we look at the scale of the challenges around the, the world, if we don't face one shallow pond, but there are millions of shallow ponds. And then how do, how do I as an individual say, I keep passing shallow ponds there, as an individual, there feels like a limitless number. At what point do I stop and say, I, I have time for myself? How, how does one strike that balance? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, and there's no easy answer to that. Uh, people can quite reasonably strike the balance in different ways. Um, I think that uh, I, you know, I, I do know a, a handful of people who really go pretty much all the way, really try to pare down all of their expenses to pretty much to necessities. Um, but I must admit, I don't do that. Um, you know, I, I have a family, I have a wife and kids, and I certainly allow them things that are far more than other people in the world have. Uh, and so, you know, I've gradually, when I first wrote that example, uh, my wife and I were on pretty modest amounts of money and we started to give 10% of our income to effective charities. Uh, we kept that up for a number of years. And then as we became more comfortable, and our kids became independent, uh, we stepped that up and we're now somewhere around a third or between fluctuates a bit between a, th a third and a half of what we're earning we're, we're giving but uh, you know the 10 percent is a good level for most people to start with i think and try to see if you're comfortable with that um, again some people with relatively little money and significant commitments might find 10 percent too much um, in the life you can save in the book uh, i did suggest a sort of progressive scale, a bit like your progressive income tax scale, so that the more you earn, the higher the percentage is. Right. Um, and people could look at that. Uh, and mentioning the book, by the way, although, as you said, I, I first wrote it 10 years ago, there's a new updated revised edition, which your listeners can download absolutely for free from uh, thelifeyoucansave.org. They can either have a free ebook or they can have a free audio book, which is uh, where chapters are read by different people, a number of them celebrities like Paul Simon, the singer-songwriter, or uh, Kristen Bell, the actress. Um, 
Stephen Fry, if uh, people in Canada listen to the BBC, as people here sometimes are, do. Are, are these people are these people bought into? They're reading the audiobook because they are bought into this idea so seriously, and they've been in touch to say, "I want to help." That's right. Yes, yes, they're all people who've indicated uh, previously indicated in some way or other. Some of them I personally knew, like Paul Simon, others just knew online, um, who'd uh, who'd indicated their support, and uh, I asked them. To, if they would spare the time to read a chapter, and uh, many of them did, and uh, that was very gratifying that they were prepared to put the time into it. Because I read one chapter myself, and it, it's not that easy, actually. It's you know, it takes a bit of effort <laughs> to, uh, to well, read reasonably well and not stumble over sentences. So you are uh, a very successful philosopher and professor and writer. You are uh, you dabbled in politics yourself at at one point. And I wonder if you take a step back and think about the state of politics today as it relates to these ideas. And, and I worry sometimes, at least in Canada, I don't know if the same holds in Australia, but the the narrative around intera- international aid has become a very, there's a lot of xenophobia in attacking it. And, and conservatives, not all conservatives, but there's a conservative streak in Canadian politics right now that is very dismissive of international aid. And the argument goes, we should look after our our seniors and our veterans here at home before we would look after anyone else around the world. And uh, what, do you, what do you say to that? Well, I would say more or less what I said before, that uh, you know, there's a lot to be done elsewhere in the world. There's a lot of people who are in much greater need than Canadian seniors and, and veterans, although you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on the situation of Canadians, uh, seniors and veterans, obviously, but um, I would be prepared to bet that they're better off. Uh, just to take an example from the United States, uh, if, you, if you're really poor, you can get food stamps. Food stamps uh, are valued at about $4 a day, um, whereas in uh, low-income countries, we know that there are over 700 million people who are living on less than $1.90 US per day. These are US dollars uh, at purchasing power parity. So it's it's not that things are cheaper in low-income countries. We're, we're taking that into account. So um, that's just an example of how, you know, there are pe- people, hundreds of millions of people who are worse off than some of the poorest people in the United States. And I would therefore say significantly worse off than some of the poorest people in Canada because you do have better social welfare provisions in the United States, which isn't saying a lot. Um, in, in Australia, just to get back to the narrative you mentioned, in, in Australia, I don't find so much uh, the xenophobia of uh, the discussion about aid. Uh, and on the conservative side, it's more been, well, our budgets are very tight now and therefore we can't afford to increase aid. But, you know, they, they, they acknowledge that aid is a good thing in general. It's just something that they're prepared to cut when they're not prepared to cut other things that perhaps have more electoral support. I mean, the argument I often put back is that we can do both, where there are vulnerable people in Canadian society and there are vulnerable people around the world. I see no reason, given the resources that we have, given the wealth that we have in this country, we absolutely ought to be able to look after our most vulnerable and support the most vulnerable elsewhere. I've seen rhetoric in the United States increasingly concerned about Bernie Sanders obviously just dropped out of the race, but he was increasingly concerned about inequality and and tackling billionaires and some of the 
people around him say billionaires shouldn't exist. Are, are, are you concerned in your work about inequality per se, or it's more, it's about extreme poverty? It's about extreme poverty for me. Uh, you know, sure, if, if I were designing a national tax system, I might make it very difficult, if not impossible, for people to become billionaires or to remain billionaires. But um, I'm not in that situation. And I think that, at, you know, we should not sort of single out billionaires because some of the billionaires are actually using their vast fortunes very effectively to help people in low-income countries to do the most good they can. Uh, Bill Gates is an example, or Bill and Melinda Gates, I should say, are examples. Warren Buffett, who's donated to the Gates Foundation, uh, has pledged most of his fortune. Um, there are a number of people, Dustin Moskowitz and Carrie Tuna, who um, are also billionaires, who are starting uh, started something called Open Philanthropy to try and work out what are the best, most effective things we can do. Uh, I think that you know, there are billionaires who are doing a great deal of good. Of course, there are a lot of billionaires who are doing very little good and not as much good as they should be, uh, and uh, that's a problem. But, but to me, it's not inequality per se. It's uh, trying to bring about a world in which everybody has enough to meet their basic needs. I think that should be the priority. And I've often thought it, this question of should a billionaire exist, it's difficult to put policies in place today to make sure that they don't exist, but surely we could have rules in place that would ensure a billionaire can't pass on wealth to then create other billionaires and their kids and, and in their grandkids, that there's estate taxes ought to play a much more serious role on that front, though that any tax can be a difficult conversation in, in, in Canadian politics sometimes. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and notably, uh, Warren Buffett um, uh, agrees with that too. Um, uh, there's this organization called Responsible Wealth that he supports, um, and he's planning to leave uh, you know, just a tiny proportion of, of his fortune to his children. Exactly. And, and we talked about it before, the radical, the more radical demand. I use the word radical because you in the book say the radically demanding implications of this shallow pond argument. It doesn't only apply to one's wealth, though. It also applies to one's time. And so uh, this is a very difficult, I find this uh, an impossible conversation in some ways because uh, I've read some of your writing about your students and some of your students become a stockbroker and then they donate a significant part of their salary. And so they were very focused on using their time to create wealth, to give their wealth, to help people in need and to save lives, which seems like a very worthwhile endeavor. You in your life went a very different route. You focus your life on ideas and persuading other people, which also seems like a very worthwhile pursuit. It seems impossible in some ways to compare the value of one's time. I suppose the ultimate standard of comparison is uh, how can you do the most good? And the problem is that that's a very difficult factual question. It's a prediction. Um, and it's a prediction that is different for every person because every person has a different set of talents. Some people may be have just the talents that would land them a high paying job on Wall Street and huge bonuses that they can then donate to effective charities. Um, other people may have some talent in uh, thinking about putting forward ideas and, and writing and persuading people through those methods. Uh, other people may have political talents um, to get into positions of influence um, and change government policies in, in desirable ways. So it's, it's extremely 
difficult to make that choice and often people come to me for advice and I really find that pretty hard as I say look I don't know you and I don't know what your talents are and so on but um, I think it's good that people should think about that and uh, there is a website that people interested in these career choices can go to it's called 80,000 hours um, and there's a lot of interesting discussion on that about which career choices are likely to be effective. And um, you'll be interested to know that going into politics is one of the ones that is rated as quite likely to be effective. Of course, that will vary depending on what country you're in and how open the political system is. Um, but yeah, it clearly can be a, a very good way of making a big difference. I, uh, I go into schools and I think there is such a, a dissatisfaction with politics sometimes that people don't see it as a a potential career for themselves or, or something to pursue more seriously. So when I when I go to high schools and to elementary schools, I emphasize the important difference that politics can make, be it through our poverty reduction policies, through family benefits, be it through public transit investments, because that's something real to a lot of kids uh, where they're riding the TTC or our, our public transit here in Toronto, uh, just having a conversation about climate change and the, and and the reality that we can't solve this on our own, that we need to do this through collective action. What does collective action look like? Fundamentally, it comes down to politics. But I think we need more people to see it as a vehicle for good because, unfortunately, there's a, a distrust in it oftentimes. Yes, there is some distrust in it in the sense that, you know, politicians make promises that then they don't fulfill and uh, you get the sense that too people are interested in staying in power rather than anything else um, and you know that's that that is complicated because if you're not in power you can't do things so it is important to stay in power but but you have to not just stay in power for its own sake but stay in power in order to do the good things that need to be done so yes there is some cynicism but I think we need to encourage uh, ethically committed uh, young people to consider going into politics to try to change all of that. Um, we need more idealists in, in politics. Were you put off by your own attempt or, or what brought you to try politics but then not to, not to try it again? So I was a founding member of the Victorian Greens, that is the state of Victoria um, branch of the Australian Greens when that party was forming. And I was a founding member of that uh, partly because of my support for their environmental policies, policies relating to climate change, to preservation of forests and wilderness. Uh, but um, also they had a, a strong animal welfare policy, which uh, I supported. And um, they did have good social policies as well. And I felt that uh, the Labour Party, which I'd supported hitherto, uh, somewhat analogous to the British Labour Party, had become too middle of the road. Um, uh, and that having a smaller party on their left flank, you could say, um, would actually help them to adopt the right policies. The other thing that's important to say here, and this is relevant to, to Canada, is that Australia does not have first-past-the-post voting. Um, for the lower house, we have what we call preferential voting, which Americans call ranked choice voting, and for the Senate, we have proportional representation. Uh, so, by standing for a minor party, I was not increasing the chances of the Conservatives beating Labor um, because my preferences uh, were flowing. If if I were was eliminated as I as I was, um, my my preference votes would flow to the next party that we ranked, which would certainly be Labor ahead of the Conservatives.
Which is a really important point. I mean, it's a it's a challenge. No political party is a perfect fit for anyone. You select a party that is most closely aligned with the values that you have. You could be in the race to raise ideas, knowing that you're not going to win. But if you want to fulfill those ideas in the end in, in a shorter term way, winning elections is incredibly important for pursuing those ideas. And it is a challenge. I mean, in a first-past-the-post system, there are real worries about vote splitting, and there are real worries about conservative politics. In the last uh, 20 years, we've seen consolidation, and we haven't seen the same consolidation on the left-center. And you might lose ideas that you otherwise shouldn't lose because the majority of Canadians support them. And as a consequentialist, as a utilitarian, it would have been, you may well have made a different decision if you were in Canada. I may well have, yes. I may well have tried to stay within the party, that was, major party that was closest to me that uh, had a better chance of winning, which in Australia would have been the Labour Party, um, rather than split the vote. Um, and, you know, I think we see the implications of that all over the place. We see it in the British Brexit um, vote and in the recent general election that they had in Britain, which Boris Johnson emerged as a victor. But in fact, um, parties that either were opposed to Brexit or that thought there should be a second referendum on Brexit received a majority of the votes. So it's it, there are many instances in which first-past-the-post voting does not deliver the results that the electorate really wants. If success in politics would have taken you away from philosophy, I, I'm, I have to say I'm glad you were unsuccessful. And, and not just me. I, my wife is a plant-based chef and nutrition professor, and, and she like you as a teacher, I, I know it has changed so many people's minds in the culinary world about the value of plant-based eating and, and not, not only for the animals, but for health and for the environment. But you actually helped change her mind. I, I was raised vegetarian myself. My, my mom raised us all vegetarian, all three kids. And I became vegan when I was in grade seven, and eight. But uh, my wife, when I first met her, she, she grew up on a uh, what was then a beef farm and she was not, in no way vegetarian and it, by virtue of living with me and eating with me she liked cooking vegetarian but she read the way we eat and that very much convinced her and when you think of why i think it's such a challenge when we thought when we think of effective altruism through time i think of your book and your advocacy that helped to change amy's mind and she's out there changing so many minds and so that that knock-on effect of education is so powerful and so I, it's, it's hard to compare the the stockbroker donating money to the to the teacher especially over the long the long term and and just the time value of those ideas so your ideas have not only influenced me but also influenced uh, my wife who then is off influencing everyone else okay that's that's good to know and uh, i should mention that the way we eat was co-authored with jim mason so um he'll be pleased to know that he had an influence on your wife and thus on on others as well and I, and I wanted to get to, um, my wife is a, a big advocate for, for changing food policy for reasons of health and animals and environment, as am I. But it's an interesting conversation to have about animal rights, which is really your foundational, this animal liberation. You get given a bit of a hard time by, by very strict vegans sometimes by, for not being strict enough. Uh, I, I get given the same hard time sometimes. But that book really, in many ways, your focus on speciesism, and, and you really launched an animal rights movement in, in a significant way. Food policy strikes me as the most important conversation we can have when it comes to animal rights. Yes, that's undoubtedly true, because if what we're trying to do is reduce the suffering and misery of, of animals, of the most animals we can, then that's overwhelmingly animals raised for food in one way or another, either for their meat or for their 
eggs or their milk. United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization said 74 billion animals are raised and killed each year worldwide. That's so ten, roughly 10 times the entire human population of the world. And, you know, vastly outnumbers the numbers of dogs and cats abused in homes or shelters, vastly outnumbers the number of animals used in research, uh, even though that might be, say, you know, globally, somewhere between one and 200 million, but still compared to 74 billion, that's a trivial amount, really. So, uh, yeah, if we can change food policy and we can shift people away from raising animals for food, and, and I should add, over, the overwhelming majority of these 74 billion animals were raised in factory farms. So it's not just that they were raised and killed, but they essentially had miserable lives, uh, crowded into sheds, unable to live their natural lives, often very stressed from the overcrowding and the confinement. You know, really, the the food in the factory farming industry will do anything to increase its profitability, to lower its costs, irrespective of the impact on animal welfare. We've seen similar arguments made when we were having this debate about humane transport laws in the last parliament. And there's a cost of doing business to improve the humanity of transporting animals. It seems to be a cost that ought to be borne because these are sentient beings that can think, feel, love and feel pain. And it's, it's frustrating to see, well, this will cost a certain amount and that number on the ledger outvalues any consideration of humanity. Yeah, it's very frustrating. I've certainly experienced that in, in Australia over the years. I've been on various government animal welfare advisory committees, and uh, you're, that's exactly the way the arguments get put. And that's why I think a lot of people in the animal movement have moved to saying, look, uh, as individual voters, it's really hard for us to change this. But as consumers can make sure that we're not supporting this kind of industry that takes no account of the welfare of the animals unless it can do so without it costing anything. So, yeah, in that way, we are starting to have an impact. The rise in vegan eating has already had an impact on what would otherwise be the expansion of the animal abuse, in, uh, particularly in Western countries. And uh, I think the potential for that to increase further is, is very great. In the last parliament, I introduced an animal protection bill to really raise the issue in Parliament. And in the end, we saw some action to ban the, the shark fin trade, to strengthen animal cruelty laws in relation to animal abuse, including sexual abuse. We saw some action towards restricting uh, cetaceans in captivity. But when I look at the sum of all of those parts, on the one hand, it's really important because by raising animal issues in Parliament, normalizing animal issues in the conversation and, and elevating those issues as, as of great importance, talking about animals as sentient uh, beings that think, love, and feel, that all, I think, helps to make some lasting change well down the road. But in the short term, none of those measures stack up in any way to the change in Canada's food guide, if it were implemented in a serious way, which says, eat mostly plants. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That would make a, a, a huge difference. And any little bit of that can, you know, can, can really make a bigger difference. Uh, uh, I used to work with a, a late friend called Henry Spiro, who was a pioneer of the American animal movement in the last quarter of the 20th century. And, you know, he, he got into discussions with McDonald's about uh, setting standards for the slaughterhouses uh, that supply them. And eventually that moved to setting standards for 
uh, other farms that supply them. The standards were not at all adequate, but but Henry's view was, you know, you can if you get someone like McDonald's to just move an inch, that's better than getting a you know converting a single restaurant from being serving meat to being completely vegan. Um, it obviously does much more for animals, and I think that's the way we have to go. We have to try to work on this larger scale, and we have to make incremental changes while never accepting those incremental changes as as doing enough to really give animals the, the moral status that they they should have but it's a way of bringing about change combined with developments in plant-based foods which have been coming quite rapidly that to me does offer the best hope of really changing the the larger issue the critique, if there is one, I think the incrementalism, the, the working with industry to reduce suffering is only a problem if it halts progress in some fashion. So if we are able to see faster action through some more abolitionist movement, then open to argument, but we certainly haven't seen that. We've seen a reduction in suffering that is more significant by virtue of, of those incremental steps, largely because, and, and really by changing people's minds in a social way. Before we get get to any legal change, we need to change people's minds before we can change any laws. Yeah, that's true. And of course, when you do change people's minds, they can directly change their diet. Uh, with regard to what you said about the abolitionist position, of course, yeah, I, I wish we could uh, abolish the exploitation of animals altogether. But to say we shouldn't even try for incremental change because it may reduce the chances of abolition seems to me to be ignoring the fact that there are these billions of animals suffering right now and we could reduce that suffering but effectively the abolitionists are saying we're not going to reduce the suffering of those animals now because we have some belief or hope that we will abolish all animal exploitation but you know, there's no basis for thinking that that is less likely to happen if we work progressively and incrementally because as you were saying before raising any of these animal issues gets people to think about animals as sentient suffering beings and i think makes it more likely not less likely that eventually we will get to the abolition of animal exploitation yeah i think that's right i think in, in the end it becomes almost a factual disagreement of what is most likely to succeed and there is, in, in my experience in politics at least, someone was pressing me at one point, why didn't I introduce a bill to ban meat? And I thought, well, how can I even take that question seriously? I, I, I yeah. don't know. I mean, I, I'm going to introduce a bill to, to, that will hopefully improve the lives of some animals, but then put animal welfare on the, on the agenda, create an animal welfare caucus and start this conversation in a more serious way in parliament. And really, hopefully, if I'm thinking more strategically, see the Canada Food Guide in place, which we now have. And now my real focus outside of this pandemic, I mean, and I want to get to an animal issue in the pandemic in a second, but I think the biggest change would be the, the oper operationalize that food policy. It's that if we say we have sustainability policies on the books as a matter of climate, we have food policies that say as a matter of healthy eating, we encourage largely plant-based eating, then you you take those twin policies together and you say in hospitals, in schools, in prisons, we should be operationalizing this policy and changing government procurement. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is that is the way to do it. And that's certainly happening in a, in a number of places that uh, all of those government institutions are starting to serve more plant based food. Um, and that's making an impact. There is an animal 
issue that we ought to talk about in the course of this pandemic. You have recently written about the need to ban wet markets around the world. And we saw the impact of wet markets in, in SARS and a short suspension. But post SARS, we didn't see the serious action that ought to have happened. And then we face another pandemic today. That's right. And if China had really banned uh, wet markets after SARS and enforced that ban, we would not be in the situation we're in today because it seems pretty clear that the coronavirus has come out of the wet markets of, of Wuhan, where, you know, for, for those who don't not familiar with the expression, where live animals are sold, including wild animals, probably in this case, it's I believe the pangolins were sold uh, and, and they were likely to have carried the virus to humans. And, and again, so they're called wet markets because the live animals are sold to the consumer. In other words, the consumer points to the cage and says, I'll have that one. Then the animal is hauled out of the cage and slaughtered on the spot. So um, there's blood all around. There are feces all around from these animals and they're all mixing. And it's, it's a horrendous situation, both for human health and for the animals themselves. And there is quite a push now to uh, ban these uh, wet markets. You know, there's been support from... A, a variety of authorities, uh, Anthony Fauci in the in the U.S. Uh, uh, has called for that, and some of the World Health Organization bodies, uh, you know, need uh, being asked to look at it. So, yeah, if citizens in Canada and elsewhere can lend their support to this idea, it's possible that at this moment um, is the right time to get that ban. Well, from a pretty simplistic cost-benefit analysis. I mean, whatever benefit that some individuals might see and uh, and obtain from accessing wet markets, the the obvious threat cost, I, I would say potential cost, but it's actually now a real cost to, to our world because of the, the lack of a ban, the lack of strong regulations at a minimum. I mean, it's completely out of whack. It, it makes no, it, it's, it's hard to comprehend that we allowed this continuum post-SARS. It is, and the costs are just immense, obviously. You know, we're, we're going into this global economic recession because of these small numbers of markets that uh, sell these live animals. Uh, so just in, in those sort of cost-benefit economic terms, it's, it's an incredible loss. But the other thing to think about is that we are incurring all these losses and, and all of this social isolation and anxiety because of a virus that has a an infection fertility rate of maybe somewhere around one percent or two percent it's quite possible that the next pandemic will be a virus more like SARS um, more like SARS in its fatality rate but more like the novel coronavirus in its contagiousness in its readiness to spread and you know that killed roughly half the people who got it so you can only imagine where we would be if we're in that situation and nobody could rule out that possibility. So we ought to be doing everything we can to reduce that possibility. I, I was at a meeting a couple of years ago with someone from the World Bank highlighting the danger of antimicrobial resistance. And it occurs to me, obviously, this simple but enduring idea about the, uh, the sentience of animals and the need to treat animals with dignity, respect, and compassion just because of who they are is, is, for me, a very powerful idea. But if one doesn't appreciate that idea, surely they have to appreciate the major health consequences 
that our world faces, not only because of wet markets, but because of the overuse of antibiotics in factory farms. I mean, there are threats in so many different areas because of animal, our, our excessive animal use. Yeah, absolutely. And, and apart from wet markets, that's the other source of pandemic risk. And, and we have had pandemics like swine flu, which was the previous pandemic in 2009, that have come out of factory farms. And, and swine flu, although people don't really remember it even very much, uh, has killed killed uh, a lot more people than so far the coronavirus has killed. It may be that the coronavirus ends up killing more people, but corona, uh, the swine flu killed somewhere between 150 and 500,000 people. But most of those people were not people in affluent countries, and that's why we don't think about it that much. Um, this one is not so selective. You helped me, I don't know if you helped me change my views. I would certainly say you, you helped me form my views in many respects as, as I was studying politics and philosophy. In the course of doing so much writing, thinking, debating, are there moments that stick out where you have heard an argument, uh, debated someone, and you've come away having changed your mind? Yes, there are, but they tend to be um, somewhat more... I guess, issues that academic philosophers are interested in, <laughs> though they, 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 they do have ramifications. So for many years, just on the question of the nature of ethics, you know, there's this big question, are, are ethical judgments objectively true, like statements of fact, or are they more like matters of taste where you know, people might say, well, that's your view, this is my view, and obviously you know, there's, there's nothing we can say to bridge that gulf. So I used to take something more like that line, although I certainly had my own ethical views, but I wasn't really prepared to say this is the true view and your view is false. I have now, as a result of discussions with philosophers like the late Derek Parfit, and was probably at Oxford when you were, I guess, uh, and Tom Nagel, who you might also have read. So I have changed my views on that issue, and I now think you can argue that there are objectively true views that, for example, the idea that it's wrong to inflict agony on any being for the fun of it, that, that that's, that's an objectively true statement, not just a matter of taste. But that's, that's obviously a, a bigger philosophical debate than we can go into here. Well, it, it, it does have uh, practical consequences. And I th I've had this same debate. I think people get confused sometimes about the word objective, and it's easier sometimes to come at it as a lawyer because we have an objective standard which we think of as from the point of view of a reasonable person. And there is objective truth, I, I, I think. It's not something that we look at with a microscope. It is as human beings. It is as objective as we can get as human beings, that there is an objective truth as we understand the world as human beings. And what, what else can we expect other than understanding the world as human beings? Yes, but then when humans disagree, and they may disagree in various ways, and sometimes those ways will be related to their culture and, and background or their religious beliefs, but they may even disagree when they don't have differences that way. Um, how do you decide what is reasonable? That's, that's the question. And on issues you know, like the objectivity of ethics, uh, I don't know that it's humans are really necessarily got the right views. I, um, I, I, after all, some of our moral beliefs, we have a result of evolution. That is, we, we evolve to have certain moral judgments. You could think of them as yuck reactions to certain kinds of things. And uh, they may have 
enhance the survival of those who had those beliefs at that time or survival of their kin, but circumstances have changed. But we may still have those reactions. I think, for example, a lot of the opposition to same-sex relationships came out of there, that you know, no doubt in small groups competing, the idea that there should be only heterosexual relationships helped the group because then the group expanded. But now we're in a situation where we don't want to have population increase, that we, we recognize that's not a good thing. So the situation is quite different. And we have actually, many countries have done very well in providing equal, equal status for same-sex relationships. And that's obviously a triumph, I, th I would say, over some of that evolutionary past. But there are, of course, other cultures where that's still not the case. And I don't think we just want to do opinion polls and say what... No, but I do think our rationality and ability to debate and to reason with one another based on principles and, and values and experiences that, that we share as humans to understand common common emotions but common experiences. I, I'm, I'm with Tom Nagel. I'm, I'm, I'm with your current view on objective truth when it comes to ethics, but it is, and it's not a matter of taste. So it's not if the majority felt this a certain way in a society and that, well, this is our view of things, it's the way it always has been, or this is the way we feel about it. That can't be the arbiter. But I do think, I think you've, I don't know how you phrase it, but this rationality and, and reason does take you to a place where there are certain truths. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Perhaps the phrase you're thinking about is, is the point of view of the universe, which uh, right. is the title of a book that I, I co-authored with a Polish philosopher called Katarzyna de Lazari Radek. And the phrase comes from Henry Sidgwick, uh, a late 19th century British utilitarian thinker. Uh, and he wasn't saying that the universe has a point of view. He was just saying that we can, as rational beings, detach ourselves from our own interests and concerns and imagine what it would be like to look at everything from the point of view of the universe. And then we would see, he believed, that certain things would be good and the right thing to do. Um, and other things would not be. So we are trying to defend that perspective in that book. I mentioned at the outset, I mean, for me, you're shallow pond, but beyond that, you're, a broad amount of your writing had influence for me. Certainly got to Oxford and was thinking about legal philosophy in a more serious way. As a political philosophy student, I found John Rawls and the original position incredibly persuasive and powerful. And he no doubt influences my pol my own politics today in, in a significant way. Ronald Dworkin, in a similar fashion, just the sense of uh, principle and integrity. I think he, he made me, uh, he and Jeremy Waldron actually probably made me value in some ways the legislature more as a matter of deliberative place. I know Ronald Dworkin always spoke, wrote about, you know, justice and robes and the courts, but I, I came to the view that I could make a bigger difference uh, through through politics than, than through law. But that's remains my hope, at least. Uh, are there philosophers in your life that you would point to and say, I wouldn't be the person I am today, or I wouldn't be the thinker I am today, but for the, these ideas and these thinkers? Uh, yes, there, there certainly are. Um, I've already mentioned Derek Parfit, who yeah. died two or three years ago. The closest to a philosophy genius, I think, that I've ever met in, in the sense that whatever argument you put up, he had already thought of it. He'd already <laughs> thought of three objections to it. He'd already thought of how you might reply to those objections. You know, and it's like it's like playing chess with a grandmaster who's thinking several moves ahead of you. It's amazing. Uh, and he was a great loss. But going back further, uh, R.M. Hare, who was the professor of moral philosophy when I was a graduate student in Oxford in uh, 
69 to 71. Uh, he supervised my work for part of the time I was there. And he had this idea of universalizability, which is not so far from Sidgwick's point of view of the universe idea but of putting yourself in the place of others when you make moral judgments and only accepting those that you could accept if you were in the position of others. So it's a version of the golden rule, you could say, but he made it a little more precise. Uh, he certainly had an influence on me. And somewhat paradoxically, my first ethics teacher at the University of Melbourne, where I was an undergraduate, a man called H.J. McCloskey, had an influence on me, although he was very contrary to the utilitarian views that I hold. But I, in a way, you know, he had objections to utilitarianism. And in one of my early essays, I tried to show why those objections were not conclusive, although I didn't consider myself a utilitarian at the time. I just thought, hmm, there's a, there's a reply to this argument that a utilitarian could make. And, you know, he was a good academic and a good teacher because although I was arguing directly against the positions that he held dearest, I suppose he recognized that I was arguing well and he encouraged me to go on and do philosophy. And without that, I might have been a lawyer like as you, I guess, because that was the other <laughs> thing I was thinking of doing. We've covered a lot of ground. And my last question for you is I've been vocal on climate change. I've introduced bills to decriminalize drugs because I, I think the opioid crisis has taken too many lives and, and there's an, an area where if you if you step outside of society and you take a look at things from the point of view of the universe as it were, the war on drugs is an abject failure and, and we need to treat people as compassionately who, who have substance use issues. I've also been vocal on animal protection issues. You made an attempt at politics in the Greens and then have lived a, a very full life as a professor of philosophy. If you were in my shoes, would you have sort of the, the top three ways of making a difference in politics? Uh, well, you'd mentioned climate change, which is definitely one of the, the biggest issues for the 21st century. That's really important. Uh, and food policy relates to climate change, clearly, as, as well as health. We've talked about foreign aid, um, international aid, at any attempts to get Canada to both give more, but perhaps even more importantly, to, to give effectively to the poorest of the poor, to the people in greatest need, because a lot of government foreign aid policies are more concerned with the government's geopolitical aims than with that. So um, I think anything you can do in that respect would be very worthwhile as well. The other issue that I might say to a different politician in a different country is the right to die or a physician assistance in dying, I think is an important issue and a, uh, something that is feasible. But of course, you now have that in Canada, so that's good. I hope that uh, you'll defend it and maintain it and perhaps extend it to people who are not terminally ill. As I understand Canada's legislation, it only applies to people who are regarded as terminally ill. We're, we're, think, we're fixing that. We're fixing you're that fixing more. that. Oh, you're great. Terrific. Well, that's good to hear. Okay, so then maybe you can tick that box and move on to the other issues that I mentioned. Peter, I really appreciate your time. And if there are other issues along the way that you think might be worth pursuing or, or think might be of interest, please do send them along. And thanks for your time, but also thanks for all of your thinking and advocacy and writing over the years. Okay, good, Nathaniel. It was really great to talk to you and I get a chance to talk to your listeners as well. And I, I hope that we will continue to be in touch. And that's our episode of Uncommons with Peter Singer. Thanks for joining and remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes.